thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Since we've um, used finished St. Rosary, I think we can start right away. Uh, I think it's also worth, worthwhile mentioning that uh, one, one rosary is worth all the Bible studies of the world put together. And uh, you, you may not necessarily be aware of it, but um, rest assured that every prayer that is in your mind and every wish and every source of frustration has been heard and has been received by Our Lady. Uh, she cannot not receive it. So when you pray the rosary together, you can be at peace because every worry of your life is in her hands. It doesn't mean that she's going to answer the way you want, to, you want her to answer because she has something much greater that she wants to give you. But it means she's heard you. Um, there's nothing greater we can do to please her son than to praise his mother. Nothing. So every time you say pray for us, even if you don't specifically say what you want her to pray for, she knows. And she's already answered. And that's the peace of faith that comes to us. That is the peace, peace without assurance based on material things. You know, this is how love works, right? When you know that somebody loves you, he or she loves you. You don't need proofs. And that's the assurance of faith. If you know that Our Lady loves you, she loves you. You don't need proofs. And you can act based on that sense. Here's a short story for you. A friend of mine told me this little story. He was, um, when he was a kid, he was going to public school, and he was poor. He was dirt poor. He didn't have any money. And one day, it was raining, so his mother gave him the umbrella of his uncle. His uncle happened to be a well-to-do man, and he, she gave him that umbrella. He needed to go to school. It was raining. And she told him, please do not lose this umbrella. It was an expensive umbrella. He gets to school, and he hangs the umbrella in one of the classrooms in a public school, and he leaves it there all day. Forgets about it. Stopped raining. He's walking back home, and he remembers the umbrella. It's been in a public school, an expensive umbrella hanging in a classroom. Usually you leave something on your desk, you come back 15 minutes later, it's gone. And he prayed to Our Lady. And he said, please, 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 I know it's at the end of the day, but please take care of that umbrella for me. He went back to that public classroom, and it was still hanging where he left it. it, it um, that story stayed with him. It was sort of the 
principle by which he lived, the umbrella. Everything else was an umbrella. You just hang it, she'll take care of it for you. But you have to hang it. That means you have to let go of it. It's not yours anymore. It's hers. And even if it sounds completely crazy, it's hers. Don't take it back. With that in mind, let's start with chapter 17 in the book of Genesis. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He that is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he that is born in your house and he that is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live in thy sight. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He shall be the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this season next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And Abraham took Ishmael his son and all the slaves born in his house or bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. 
That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. How did he do that? That's what I want to know. How is a 99-year-old man able to go to a bunch of guys and say, I got some good news, and I got some bad news. And then he produces a knife. And if you, know what, if you don't know what it is, join me in the tent. This is a painful operation for grown-up men, and also for babies. According to the latest pediatric research, they thought that babies did not feel it, but actually the babies do feel pain when they undergo this operation. How did he convince them to do something like this? He definitely had clout. He was respected, and they truly obeyed him. How many men can command that kind of respect, that kind of devotion? There's much that can be said about that, uh, specifically in regards to the authority that a father has to have in his own household, which is a God-given authority, when he follows the covenant. When a man is living according to God's covenant in his own household, he is rewarded by having obedient children. He doesn't have to fight with rebellious children. But when he himself is rebellious to the covenant of God, he is cursed with disobedient children, rebellious children who will not listen to him. You can see it here in the case of Abraham, not only his own children, but the entire tribe obeys him. And not the women, the men. And not in business of money or power, in something that is rather very, very intimate. That is the power of the covenant. It orders everything according to God's will. If you, I think you've noticed the number of times the word covenant appears here. And all that God seems to be preoccupied with is establishing a covenant. This is the third time we hear God saying, I will establish my covenant. So let's remind ourselves one more time. A covenant is, a, uh, is not an agreement. This is not something that two parties come together and agree to. You need to take that idea completely out of your mind. Because until you do so, you can't fully live the right relationship with God. A covenant is something that is established by a strong party towards a weak party. This is something that a king who just conquered a land established with those who were conquered. They have no say. Do you understand that? So this is not a contract. This is not something that Abraham and God sit at a negotiating table and come to define the terms of the agreement. It doesn't work that way. God says, here is my covenant. You will live by this covenant. If you live by this covenant, I will bless you. If you don't live by this covenant, I will curse you. It's that simple. There's anything you can carry out of this Bible study, this, this very simple idea of the covenant And it is this simple idea, the covenant, that today regulates your lives. That's how God deals with us, through the covenant. Now, this particular chapter follows on the heel of the previous one. The previous one, if you recall, chapter 16 was called, The Covenant, again, Between the Pieces. That's when Abraham, Abram, sorry, he wasn't yet called Abraham, brought these pieces of meat, remember, and he cut them into two, and God walked between the pieces. Now, this edition, this version of the covenant, 
is far stronger because it no longer concerns flesh of animals. Rather, it concerns flesh of men. What is the purpose of the circumcision? Why circumcision? Without the prior chapter, the covenant between the pieces, we don't fully understand the purpose of circumcision. What happened in the prior chapter? Abraham took animals, killed the animals, split them into two, and God walked between the pieces. And the purpose of that in ancient times was that if, let's say, you and I were to come to an agreement, and I'm giving you some land, I'm saying, I'm going to deed this land to you as a covenant, part of my covenant, I'm going to give you this land, I'll take a cow or a calf or something, split it in half, and I'll walk between the pieces. And by this gesture, I mean to say that may it happen to me, as it had happened to this animal, should I not live up to the covenant. Effectively, I am putting myself under a curse should I not fulfill this covenant, which gives you the sense that I will fulfill it because I have just put myself under a curse. You understand? In, in chapter 16, God, symbolically, through the light, through the flame, walked between the pieces. He, God, put himself under that curse. In this chapter, it is not God that circumcises men. There is no flame that comes from heaven and cuts the foreskin. It is Abraham. So whether he does it personally or he actually delegates it to somebody who may have a more steady, steadier hand, we don't really know. But it is still him. So therefore, what he's doing is essentially saying, may it happen to me as it is happening to this piece of foreskin being cut off. You understand? That's how the covenant is being Signed and sealed in the flesh. In the flesh. So men now who take on this covenant are basically saying, may it happen to me as it had happened to this foreskin if I were not to live by the covenant. Yeah? You understand the purpose? Now there's a second purpose. Why? Obviously, why the foreskin and not say the lobe of the ear or the pinky? Or the tip of the nose. There's an obvious reason, right? And it is related to what happened earlier when Abraham and Sarai brought forth Ishmael through Hagar. It is related, obviously, to sexual sins. The purpose of the circumcision, therefore, is an, there's a multiple meanings to it. Number one, it serves to remind men that they must exercise restraint in that field. They have to exercise restraint. It is a reminder to men that great suffering and great pain might come to them should they use sexuality the wrong way. Now, here I wish again to remind you of something I've said a number of times, but it's worth repeating because I have seen this tendency, uh, what I call the, the Catholic... Puritanic tendency. I have heard of many, not many, but some folks who came to the Bible study one way or the other that uh, in their married life, some folks may consider sexuality to be a dirty thing. So, you know, sexuality is there so you can have kids and that's it. It's a, um, it's a, it's a gross misunderstanding of God's purpose for men and women. Uh, sexuality has two purposes. 
Unitive and procreative. Unitive, the two shall become one. And um, uh, sexuality obviously doesn't, is not restricted to the pure physical act. It's everything that surrounds it. It's the communication, the conversation, the exchange, the emotional bonding, the closeness. So much goes on there that it is the most absolutely positive and beautiful unitive force in a marriage. So if usually it's, it's the, the, the women who tend to have this sort of a reserve. I mean, reserve is a very good thing, don't get me wrong, but going in so far as to say that sexuality is dirty or not appropriate is actually um, detrimental to the married life. So uh, if you know people who are in that situation, they really need to pray over the fact that God created us and he created us and he saw us as being a really good creation and sexuality is part of this creation. It is this unity between man and woman. Having said all that, so that sometimes you see mostly on the case of women who are married. On the case of men, it's the, the, sometimes the inability to restrain themselves, whether they fall into a number of uh, sexual vices, which unfortunately in this day and age happen all too easily, um, or whether they only consider it in its purely physical dimension and tend to ignore all the other ones. Uh, men need to understand that there is more that goes here than just the physical act. And perhaps the best way to understand this is to make sure that in your own life there is no dichotomy, no separation, no gap between prayer on the one hand and sexuality on the other. Especially when it comes to children. Uh, people come and ask, well, should I have two? Should I have eight? They get fixated on numbers. We're so numerically oriented that everything has to be through a number. But it doesn't work this way. God is, has, hasn't set up a number you know, you got three, you pass. You got two, you go to hell. doesn't work this way, all right? It's, it's a conversation with God, right? It's a conversation. And remember one more time, the covenant of marriage is not between a man and a woman. It's between God, the strong party, and the man and the woman who are the weak party. That's, that's the covenant of marriage. This is how it works, okay? So the, the, the idea, the notion is that in a properly ordered sexual life, a man and a woman, when they get together... Offer up a prayer of thanksgiving to God and ask the simple question, is this the right time? Should we have a baby? And leave the decision up to God. And of course, they need to exercise their reason, consider other things. If they have a sick child, if there are... no, I can't give you, there's no algorithm here. But obviously, there are a number of things that need to be considered. But in the case of a young family, mother is, mother is healthy, father is healthy. Um, Wanting to go to Tahiti is no uh, impediment for having a child. You don't go to Tahiti, you have a child. All right? The proper ordering of things, because the child is the greatest blessing. So, as long as there's no dichotomy between the two, as prayer and sexuality are seen as both expression of our love towards each other and a gift from God in both instances, then sexuality can be lived truly and properly in the unitive sense. But when these two are separated, when in the mind of, of a person... Prayer is uh, on the one hand and sexuality on the other and the two shall never meet. There is definitely a problem. So circumcision was instituted also as an aid for men to learn to restrain themselves. As you can see, God is not interested in giving Abraham and those who live with him eternal truths that are of no use to them. Scripture is not about the eternal truths that are stored in heaven that God wishes to reveal to us it is about a relationship of a father with his children. 
It is a father who is discipling, who is disciplining, who is helping and caring for his children and showing them how they ought to live for their own good. That's the purpose of Scripture. And, I might add, it is the purpose of the Catholic Church. So all the rules, all the precepts, all the warnings, all the, all the things that the church tell us and teach us is there for our own good. And there is no love of God apart from the love of the Catholic Church. can't love God if you don't love the Catholic Church. If you're not devoted to the Catholic Church, if you don't have a great love for the church, then don't, don't, don't um, delude yourself. Because, again, Christ united the church to himself. She's his bride. And there is no separation between the bride and the groom. They're one. Hence, loving one is loving the other. And that is the teaching of St. Augustine. Right? He who does not have the Catholic Church for his mother, says St. Augustine, does not have God for his father. That is very important. You increase your love for God by increasing your love for his bride. You show God that you worship him and you adore him and you truly understand his sacrifice on the cross by truly loving and being an obedient child of your mother, the church. She's your mom. Listen to mom. Now, the chapter is divided into four parts. Verses 1 through 8, obviously, speaks of the promise to Abraham. So let's go through that. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, th- this is language that harkens back to Noah. So now we are rejoining the Nohanic promise that are given to Noah at the beginning after the flood. I am, right? Yahweh, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. The same word that God spoke to Noah. It is a call to holiness. To be blameless is to be holy, without blemish, pure. Walk before me. What does it mean to walk before God? Who does it hearken to? Can you think of somebody who walked before God? Pardon? Not Adam, no. Adam did not walk before God. That was his problem. Somebody else. Pardon? Yes, but someone from Genesis. Enoch, thank you. Enoch. He walked before God, and he was no more. God took him. That is the same call. Walk before me. It is a call to reach heaven. To walk before somebody. Any one of you who have little children know exactly what that means. If you're walking somewhere in a mall or in a zoo or in a wild animal park or whatever else you're walking in a park, where are your children? Behind you? They're before you. Right? Why? You're keeping an eye. And you give directions. Right? No, don't touch this. No, you don't have to pick up the dog's poop. It's not yours. Right? That sort of stuff. But, but that is precisely what God does with us. That's what it means to walk before God. It is this ongoing conversation with the Lord that you have every day. Right? St. Philip Neri started his day with this prayer. Lord, remember Philip today, lest he betrays you again. 
Remember Philip today, lest he betrays you again. Very realistic prayer. Very realistic prayer. That's the walking before God. And it's only when we walk before Him, when we are mindful of His presence in our day, when we are in conversation with Him, that we can be blameless. There's no way that we can be spiritual airhead and blameless. Not going to work. You can't go about ignoring God and hoping to be blameless. All right, so... Please, if you've ever used this sort of line of reasoning before, I'm a good person, I didn't kill anybody, I don't cheat on my taxes, I'm going to heaven, please take that and put it in the garbage can and never look at it again. All right? God judges by other standards. It's only by walking before God and that we can be blameless. So that's the command. Walk before me and be blameless. And then he says to him, I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. So the fruit of Abraham's walking before God and being blameless is this covenant, the gift of God. That is why the prayer of a saint is so powerful. Because it brings blessings not upon upon himself only, but upon everybody else. Because of his walking before God and being blameless. And observe, I will make my covenant between me and you. This is how kids speak usually. Me, Johnny, and, uh, and Bill went to the park. Me, Johnny, oh, yeah, Johnny, Bill, and I. You know, there's a turn of phrase here. God doesn't say, I want to make my covenant between you and I, or you and me. It, between me and you. Why? Because me, the strong party, you, the weak party. That's why. So, I, I have repeated this a number of times, but I feel to, compelled to repeat it again about marriage Especially, I see a number of young folks here. I'd like, you to remind, I'd like you to remember that marriage in the Catholic Church, the reason why two men and women come walking down the aisle, is because they fundamentally are coming here before God and saying to Him, Lord, we're coming before You because we're so much in love that we're completely blinded to our own faults. Please take care of us. I'm being facetious, but that's the fundamental reality. What they're, trying, what they're basically saying is that, God, we can't trust each other so much that we know we're going to be able to live together for 40 years without killing each other. Nobody can make that promise based on our own selves. We just are not that good. But we also know that on, in Cana, you sanctified marriages. When you died on the cross, you made that oath. Sacraments are oath. Sacramentum means oath. These are, this is the oath of Jesus Christ. I will make you holy if you trust in me. So we come before you to make a covenant with you. Why? Because you allow us. At Cana, you allow us to do that. You open that avenue for us. We can come to you. Unlike Abraham who has to wait for you 13 years, we come to you and we ask for your blessing, your stamp, your divine stamp of approval on our union. What does that mean? It means now our marriage is underwritten by you, by your divine name. So therefore, that means that it will bear fruit. It will make us blameless. We'll walk before you, and it will make us blameless, provided we're faithful to your commandments. And God says, because of my death on the cross, I will underwrite your marriage. And he puts the divine seal on the marriage. And I hope you understand why in a Catholic church we don't believe in divorce. 
Because a divorce is supposed to be a human act that breaks a covenant established by God. And logically, no human being has the strength to break a divine bond. So therefore, divorce is absurd. It's, it's, it's men cheating men. Can't happen. God now is the strong party. Men and women are the weak party. And he has just underwritten that marriage. If now they obey the covenant, meaning they obey the rules of the Catholic Church, and they live by the word of God, he will bless them. They will not know how, but he will bless them. He will. And turn them into saints. And their children, their children's children. That's what he will do, provided they're faithful to him. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I want you to really understand that this business of the covenant isn't some sort of thing that happened once in the past and has no impact on our lives. It governs us. It absolutely governs us. This covenant that you're hearing about here governs the Middle East. The Jews and the Muslims would love to be able to have this covenant come to an end. Because what they're going through right now is because of this covenant. They will never find peace. There will be no peace outside of the covenant. That's the power of the covenant that God uses to govern the entire world. Abraham fell on his face, which is, in this specific instance, is falling on his face because of the presence of God. Well, the presence of God has that effect on us because we are not able to withstand his holiness. So we literally fall on our face. We're on the ground. Um, and um, this is an example, for instance, where you see bodily expression of worship falling on our face. So if you have Protestant friends who ask, why do you kneel and you stand and you do all this stuff? Well, that's why. Because we pray through our body. We're not spirits. And when we kneel, it means something. It's an act of worship. When we bow, it means something. It's an act of worship. When we stand, when we sit, those are expression of our relationship with God. That is why we do them. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Father of nations, not father of nation. Abraham is the father of nations. Notice the S at the end. What nations? To understand this, you have to go to the, to the last chapter of the Gospel of St. Matthew. The Great Commission that Jesus gave his apostles. Go forth, baptizing all nations. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and behold, I am with you until the consummation of the age. That's why he said it. It is this promise given to Abraham that is now coming to fulfillment. It is all the nations who have entered the covenant through Jesus Christ. That is the far-reaching fruit of the covenant made with Abraham. That it would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that is why the Old Testament alone and the Jewish view of the Old Testament cannot be complete apart from Jesus Christ. Because it's a universal aspect, all nations, that cannot be explained apart from Jesus Christ. It is not purely Jewish-centric. It is universal, Catholic. Yet one covenant. One covenant. And to paraphrase a very famous sentence, one covenant to rule them all. It's this one covenant that has been fulfilled in our Lord that truly rules all nations today. So when you look at all the events of the world, 
all the political events, all the economical events, all that is happening out there, all of that is the expression of the kingship of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus governing the world. And if you understand that, not just here, but in your heart, if you understand in your heart of hearts that all that is happening today is the governing of Jesus Christ, that nothing escapes His rule, nothing escapes His kinship, that nothing out there that is happening today is done apart from His will, but everything is being done today to fulfill His will and show us the glory of the church in ways we can't even conceive or understand. If you have that truth in your heart, then you can live at peace. Because all that is happening is happening for the greater glory of God. And the only question that remains for us is, how many souls are lost and how many souls are saved because of what I'm doing? That is the only thing we have control over today. No longer shall your name be Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham. Now, there are various explanations given to Abraham. One sees it as an acronym, actually a double acronym, to mean father of nations. But it's really play on word. Others explain it simply by saying that God is enlarging Abraham by effectively and physically enlarging his name. And the extension of his name is a sign of the extension that that, that is going to be his throughout the generations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings shall come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you again and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So historically, the land of Canaan was given by God to Israel. That is clearly indicated here. However, what did Jesus say in the Grand Commission? Go forth, baptizing all nations. What does that mean? What is Jesus laying claim to? All nations. Therefore, all nations belong to whom? The church. The church. All nations belong to the church. In a spiritual sense. It doesn't mean material possession. It doesn't mean that the church has to lay claim to material things. If that was the case, Jesus would have established a material kingdom. But that was not the intent. It's a much greater possession. It's a possession of souls. The church lays claim to all souls in the name of Christ. That is her authority. But you can see that outside of the new covenant, there's no such understanding. And all that you're left with is the old covenant. The material one, the one based on material possession, which has been surpassed since the coming of Christ, but yet still rules those who live outside of the new covenant. Here's one commentary I think is worth reading from St. Ambrose. Be blameless. The words be blameless are addressed to Abraham, to whom had been given the spirit of wisdom, holy, marvelously agile, unpolluted. The soul of the just man, therefore, must be in training night and day, ever on the lookout, never indulging in sleep, but on perpetual watch, intent on God, so as to understand the things that are, that are and to comprehend the causes of, of each. But wisdom is also the interpreter of future things. She knows the things of old and infers the things to come. She understands turns of speech and the solutions of riddles. 
She has foreknowledge of signs and wonders and of the outcome of seasons and times. He's quoting from the Book of Wisdom. One who has obtained her, therefore, cannot be good and perfect, cannot be but good and perfect, because he possesses every virtue and is the very image of goodness. Even the sophists of this world drew from this text a definition of such a wise man. The wise man is a good man and an accomplished communicator. He's a good man and an accomplished communicator. He's not just an accomplished communicator, and he's not just a good man. He's both. So, be blameless in a spiritual sense isn't just about making sure we do the right thing. It's also about studying, learning, thinking, pondering, understanding, and communicating. It's about all these things, and we're all called to do it. Now, some of us may say, but I don't have facility with words. And to this, we always reply by what St. Francis perhaps one of the greatest wise men there are, said, preach always and use words whenever necessary. You don't have to preach with words. You preach by your actions, by your virtue, by your decisions. If you're at work and you have colleagues who are non-Christian, they will come to see the truth through your conduct the way you behave, the fact that you not, do not watch R-rated movies, the fact that you do not that have sexual material related to them, the fact that you do the sign of the cross before you eat, the fact that you do not use swear words, the fact that you control your language, you do not allow anger to take over, the fact that you're forbearing, that you're patient, that you're kind. These are the ways through which you can preach the truth of Jesus Christ and they will come to notice it. There is here another comment I'd like to uh, bring about, uh, about the change of Abraham's name, and, I, and then I need to move forward. Otherwise, we'll never get out of this chapter. Um, St. Augustine, as usual, asks the following, he, he makes the, follow, the following point. A question arises here which should not be passed over, and which may perhaps also quite independently be bothering some of you. What does it mean that when the name of Abraham, uh, when the name of Abraham, this man's Jacob's grandfather was changed. He was previously called Abram. You see, and God changed his name and said, you shall not be called Abram, but Abraham. From that time on, he was never called Abram. He's got a good point. Once he's called Abraham, we never go back to Abram. It's always Abraham. But St. Augustine continues and says, yet when you look and you see in Jacob, Jacob's name was changed. And was it, what was it changed to? Israel. But if you notice in Scripture, the two names continue to be used. Jacob and Israel. It isn't a uniform change as we have here. When Jacob's name is changed to Israel, he's continued also to be called both Jacob and Israel. And St. Augustine, with his marvelous mind, infers from this that God wished to point out to us that the covenant of Abraham was to be fulfilled completely in the Old Testament because of that full change. But the covenant with Jacob was yet to come. That in Jacob, the old and the new lived side by side. The old presently and the new in the promise. And it would only be fully changed when Jesus were to come. Uh, if you read the City of God, you, 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 you'll come to love St. Augustine because he's an amazing, sharp 
mind. I mean, he, he understands things and, and is able to communicate them with great clarity, which is really beautiful. Now, the last circumcision is set forth in verses 9 through 14. And I will want to make one comment. I've spoken quite a bit about it, but I will want to make one comment here, which is on verse 12. He that is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. And verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Any male, male. So first question, why male only? What happened to the women? Where did the women go? What, what happened to the women? Is this one of those, uh, you know, male patriarchal domination, you know, thing, as some of the modern feminists like to think? Is that what is going on here? Yes. Yes, true. She's a helper, but uh, helper in English, just keep in mind, helper is a weak word to truly represent the relationship of man and woman, right? Uh, although I do understand what you're pointing at, but I, it, it, most of the time, here's one simple rule. Most of the time, the reason is very practical. It isn't, it's not some sort of philosophical. It's very, very practical because God is doing something amidst the culture. All right? Remember what I said about circumcision, about men, right? It is a vice that in olden times at least, men were suffering for more so than women. In this day and age, it seems that equality between men and women is almost in all fields, including vices. But that was not the case back then. So the ordering of society back then meant that you had to control the sexual urge of men. Women were not, by themselves, prone to this kind of vice. They can be prodded and pushed into it, but on their own they would not get into it. But there's another reason, which has to do with certain practices that I don't have to get into right now, that targeted women, which were done for reasons of control. And God is completely avoiding all of this. I don't need to get into the details, but there were um, effectively, you can think of them as mutilation, that were done against women. And God is completely preventing this from happening. He's not allowing this to happen in the covenant. Okay? That's reason number one. And reason number two is the one I gave you. That is, you control the man in his sexual urge, and things will, will, move, will move forward, will go the right, the right direction. Because men tend to influence women in that field more so than the other way around. All right. Now, he that is eight day old. What happens if a baby dies and he's two days old? What happens before the eight days? First of all, why eight days? Now, I'll give you the spiritual answer right away, the one that St. Paul gives. The eighth day is which day? It's the day, it's the new day. It's the day of res the resurrection. Right? So it is foreshadowing the resurrection. The Sabbath was the seventh day. Sunday was the new day and became the eighth day. Right? The day in which God truly rested because his work was complete. So therefore, it's prefiguring that call. But more practically, why eight? Well, reason number one, child mortality was very high. Simple as that. Many babies didn't survive. Another reason, which obviously is related to baptism, there's this gap, right? There's a gap. 
So, um, what can we say? In, in the case of babies who die before the eighth day, there, there is truly no impact because the gates of heaven aren't opened. You, you see? The old covenant does not regulate the relationship we have with heaven because the gates of heaven are closed. Our Lord has not, has not, been, is not yet born. He didn't die and he didn't raise from the dead to open for us the gates of heaven. Therefore, the old covenant is meant to govern life on earth, not our relationship with heaven. You understand that? But it's also a prefiguration, a point or two, what is to come. The real covenant with Jesus Christ, which regulates our relationship with heaven. You understand? So therefore, a baby who dies before the eighth day is not affected either way because he's dead. And that covenant doesn't rule him, doesn't have impact on him. Meaning, if you're in the covenant or outside the covenant, when you die, you go to the same place. The limbo of the just, waiting for the gate of heaven to open, if you are deemed worthy of heaven. And if you're not, you go to hell, and that's the end of it. Yes? But as far as baptism is concerned, there is an impact. So the Catholic Church recommends that you baptize a child within the first four weeks, and you do not delay. When you delay beyond the fourth, the fourth week, you're really testing God. If you say, well, you know, I can't do it because my mother-in-law is not here. They're planning for the trip from, you know, Swaziland. It's going to take them six months to show up. We're going to have to wait. What can we do? You're testing God. You've got to realize this. I know it's ingrained in some culture where we tend to make big celebrations. It's like we have this uh, inverse relationship with the truth. We celebrate big events, but we really don't understand what they mean. Like First Communion, we make a big deal out of it, but then we don't teach our kids at home. We don't pray around the table. We don't say the rosary with them, especially the men. We don't teach our kids the faith. We don't open up the catechism and tell them about it to make, maintain this thing that we spent so much money on when we made this big feast. So many of us tend to be culturally Catholic. We just do those things because it's cultural. It's fun. It's great. But we've got no clue what we're doing. So there is a truly understanding that without baptism, we don't make it to heaven. You understand that? No, it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how wonderful you are. It doesn't matter how many good deeds you did. If you're not baptized, you can't get in heaven. You've got you to really understand there is no way around baptism. So whether it's baptism by desire, baptism by blood, which are open for those who are outside the Catholic Church and somehow really wish to be baptized but couldn't, God would extend salvation to them. But apart from that, we are before a really difficult topic. Why? Because why is that so important? Because, again, if you don't understand that, you, 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 you don't fully appreciate what Jesus did for us. Baptism incorporates us in the life that Jesus gave us. It's the supernatural life that enters our heart. That's what baptism does. Remember, to get to heaven, we have to change our nature. Why? Because God is divine. And to be called the children of God, we have to become people of the same nature as God. God's nature is divine. Our nature is human. No matter how good we are, we can't become divine on our own. You get it? Cannot become divine. On my own, I can't turn myself into God. Right? No matter what the devil said, you shall be like God. No, I'm not going to be like God because I can't make myself divine. My nature is human. I can't, myself, I can't turn myself into a frog, although sometimes I can behave like one, and I can't turn my nature into divine. I can't change my nature on my own, no matter what I do. I'm constrained. I'm a creature. God has to change my nature into a divine one so I become his child. 
That's what baptism does. Without that change, I cannot enter heaven. And baptism occurred when? When does baptism begin? When he establishes the covenant. When he establishes the church and gives the church the means to baptize. So that people may be incorporated into him and receive everlasting life. And then they have to maintain it. Hence, confession. Hence, the Eucharist, which maintains and grows this divine life in us. So that we can finally be joined to God in heaven. Really simple. And this is an indication that don't mess with the life of kids. Consequences are eternal. Life is precious. Don't mess with the kids. It's amazing the power of parents, you know. I just read a story about a Polish priest. He's 60 years old. And he was, 40 years ago, he discovered that he, his real parents were Jews. And they gave him to his adoptive parents during the Second World War because they were being uh, pursued by the Nazis. And his parents died um, in Auschwitz. They were killed by the, by the Nazis. But the interesting thing is when his mother revealed to him this, so he then was adopted by this family, and they never told him his origin, nothing about his parents, his original parents, and they ended up being in Eastern Europe because if you recall, Poland was kind of divided and part of it became part of Eastern Europe. So they were living under a communist regime. And, there was, and the Jewish mother, his mother, when she gave his baby to her, to Maria, his adoptive mother, she told him, please take care of my baby. He was a baby. And in the name of, of this Jesus you love, when he grows up, he will become a Catholic priest. And so when he was a young man and he told his parents he wanted to become a Catholic priest, they nearly had a heart attack. His father did everything to encourage him to become a doctor. That's the power of mothers, the power of fathers, the power of the covenant. Any uncircumcised man, male, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. Cut off. What does that word mean? Do you know another word that says the same thing? Cut off? That's it. Excommunicated. Excommunication is not an invention of the Catholic Church. It comes to us from Scripture. If you do not live according to the precepts of the church, that is the precepts of God, you are cut off. You're separated. Did we talk about cutting off something a little bit earlier? Okay, you see the relationship now? Why he's doing it? It's catechesis in the flesh. You know, oftentimes I talk to people who are really, seems to be traumatized when they hear about spanking. There's this sort of anti-spanking mentality where they confuse spanking with abusing a kid. And my answer back to them, and by, by the way, I'm not one to say that everybody has to spank. I know people who never spank, had wonderful kids. I know people who spank, had wonderful kids. Okay? I won't say anything more than that. But here's my answer back to them. When you have a toddler, three years old, and you want to show the toddler that you love him, what do you do? Do you sit the toddler on a chair, and you sit in front of him, and start talking to him about agape? Do you talk to the toddler about love? Do you do that? Do you explain to him that you love him? Do you give him paper filled with signs of proof why you love him? Do you do that? What do you do? Why do you hug him? Because he's got a body. And we learn through our body. We're not some sort of a spirit floating up in the air. We learn through our body. So the, the, the interesting thing 
Again, about, you remember this business of we're always walking this tight line between personal responsibility and between social responsibility. And in the Catholic Church, it isn't one or the other. It isn't Jesus and me type deal. And it isn't, oh, well, there's nothing I can do about it, the way the Protestants think about it. It's both. I am personally responsible before God, but also my community has a lot to do with me. Hence, if I go to our Blessed Mother and I ask her to intercede for me, even though I am a sinner, her intercession outweighs my sins because of the great love she has for God. Okay, here, a man who is not circumcised is cut off, yes? His wife, what, what happens to her and his kids? What happened to them? They're cut off too, you get it? I can't tell you how annoying this is for men. You know, uh, many folks these days have a problem with this passage of St. Paul where he says, women be obedient to your husband, husband love your wife like Christ loved the church. And they think somehow that the men who really understand this passage in light of the covenant have a trip over this, like a power trip. Oh, I'm the boss here, you listen to me. The, nothing can be further from the truth. In fact, what the men would, would wish secretly is that St. Paul had never said that. The obedience part and the love part, both of them. Because what men want to do fundamentally is run away. That's the, the last thing they want is responsibility. If you don't believe me, just look out there. Just look the way they behave. A man who is not circumcised. Now, get this. If the guy doesn't take the pain, his kids will pay for it. You get it? Let's say he's a dad and he's got three girls, no boys. So he's the only boy in the family. If he does not take the pain, his family is cut off. That's what it means to be a man. That's what it means to be the head of the family. That's what it means to be another Christ. You take the pain. Now, Ishmael was 13 years when he was circumcised. And oh, by the way, God waited 13 years to come to Abram. I have a whole commentary about this in the prior study, so I'm not going to go over this, but I'm just going to point that out to you. 13 years. It took 13 years for God to come back. And no, it's not because the connection between earth and heaven is not a, on a fast, you know, T1 connection. There's other reasons why. Okay. The interesting thing in this particular chapter, unlike the prior one, is that now Sarai is mentioned by name. In the prior covenant, God only told Abraham or Abraham, I'll make a covenant with you, you'll have a son, etc. Sarai was never mentioned, right? Never. And we know what happened. She got in trouble. She thought, uh-oh, he's going to go find another wife. Better take action. She took action. Ishmael was born, and we know the rest. This time, God mentions her by name. But outside of the circumcision, first he says, I'm going to make my covenant with you. And then he says, here's the sign of the covenant. Now, the covenant is established on these principles. And once it's established, he then turns around and speaks about Sarai. But you will notice there are no promises and no conditions attached to her. Now, go tell me God is not sexist. And go tell me God doesn't like women more than he likes men. No strings attached. She gets it for free. Well, not quite so. She still has to bear a kid. I mean, facetious, but in truth, that is what he said, didn't he? With Adam and Eve. 
And that's truly remarkable. God had to come and tweak the covenant with men five times. Noah, I mean, Adam, Noah, Abraham, right? David, I mean, Moses, David. And then he had to do it himself on the cross. But with women, he never changed it. Once was enough. Now, guys, who do you think listened to God more? And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Queen. So, here's what I would say to you. Sarah shall be her name. Every time, well, every, every time a man marries a woman, her name is Sarah. She's a queen. And if you, those of you who are from the Eastern tradition, know what happens during the wedding, right? What do, we, what do we do? We crown the man and the woman. Why? Because of this. That is why. The church has always seen in this covenant between a man and a woman, Abraham and Sarah, an exemplar, a sort of a prototype for marital life. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. Two things. There's a blessing specific to her, and then there is a second one, which is a son. I will bless her, and shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. It's the complement of the covenant he made with Abraham. And he's repeating it for him to understand. There's not going to be any other one. It is her, and all the covenant shall be fulfilled through her. Now, Abraham fell on his face for the second time, and he laughed, and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? You, you always notice this man, how just he is. He's not laughing about his wife. First, he's laughing about himself. Can this happen to me? And then, could my wife bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live in thy sight. So God spoke to him plainly, but he didn't get it. Why? That's what happens to all of us. God speaks to us sometimes plainly, but the immediate circumstance of our life take over, and we can't believe God. Sort of tomorrow he shows up and says, um, Johnny, I want you to go in the desert, and when you get there, I am going to turn the desert into a forest. Now, how many of us would say, yes, Lord, and we get up and start walking? We don't do that. What happens? Reality takes, takes over. What, but there is this and that and the other and those th the other excuses. And then there is the lawsuits and the warranties and the insurance and the city and the county and, uh, and on and on it goes. And we forget who we're talking to. God. That's what happened here. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. Now, why is that repeating? Because he's a father, right? Son. Uh, pick up that ball over there. I can't. It's heavy. What do you do when the kid reply this way? You just stoop down, right? Then to stoop down and say, no, it's not heavy. You can pick it up. But if I pick it up, it will fall. No, it will not fall. You just have to hold it really carefully and lift it up. And it will not fall. And don't worry, I'll be there to help you. But I cannot do it. Why do you think he's answering this way? What's behind that answer? No, he just doesn't want to do it. He just doesn't want to do it. I can't do it. I'm tired. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I need to go to the bathroom. 
What do you do then? Do you just say, okay, forget it. You're not my son anymore. Let's go to the orphanage, drop you there. Is that what you do? No. You know, you heave a deep sigh and you start all over again, right? Use a different tactic. You say, okay, this kid is not ready for plan A. Let me go to plan B. Okay, listen, son. If you take the ball, pick it up, you're, you're helping him pick up the room, right? And put it in its place. I'll give you a chewing gum. Now, is that really what you want? Do you want to bribe the kid? No, you'd wish he'd just listened to you the first time. Yes, father. And he did it promptly. But plan A didn't work. You went to plan B. I'm going to give you a hand. That didn't work either. So you went to plan C. Okay, I'll give you a chewing gum. What do you think the answer is going to be? What kind of chewing gum? <laughs> ah, now we're in negotiation. This is watermelon chewing gum? Okay, now you're in bind. You don't have watermelon chewing gum. It's 9.30 in the evening. So you think, okay, CVS is still open. They may have watermelon chewing gum. So you say, yeah, I'll give you watermelon chewing gum. Can I have two? At which point you, pl- you switch to plan D. Now listen, kid. Pick this thing or else. Right? Well, welcome to the Bible. That's what the Bible is all about. Sometimes we're so taken by the deep truths of Scripture, we forget it's Daddy talking to us. And that's why really gifts of fatherhood and motherhood, because when you are a parent or a father in a church, when you have people to take care of, you understand Scripture so much better. You see the love of God through Scripture. That's what he's doing here. Abraham said, may, may Ishmael live before you. No, Sarah. He's repeating one more time. No, no, no. She will. She will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And then he adds, here's the chewing gum. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and make him fruitful. Why? Because Ishmael is Abraham's kid. He's been with him 13 years. That Isaac doesn't exist yet. He doesn't know him from Adam or Eve. It's some sort of a promise. I have a kid who's been my kid for 13 years living with me. And there's this promise to the other kid I don't know. Which of the two am I going to pick? God takes care of Abraham by saying, I have heard you. Why? Because of what happened in the prior chapter. The covenant between the pieces. God put himself under a curse. And saying, those who bless you, I will bless. He just blessed him. So he will carry that forward. He will bless Ishmael on account of that covenant. But the blessing of Ishmael is purely materialistic. Twelve princes, the nations... He will be wealthy, but it's not spiritual. The covenant will be established with Isaac. Why? Because it is within the marital bonds. That is why. Isaac is truly Abraham's and Sarah, his wife, son. And that is why he is the son of the covenant. That is why in him shall the covenant be fulfilled. And God, notice, he's repeating. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you, at this season next year. The pedagogy of God. God knows we need to repeat. He has to repeat. We repeat. That's why we repeat in the rosary. Hail Mary, full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace. We need to repeat, to hear it, and understand. God repeats. He's dealing with kids who are saying, I'm tired, I want to go to the bathroom, I don't want to do this. And he says, no, 
you'll do it, and I'll be with you. And I'll be with you. And then he went from Abraham. And then we see, we see, um, by the way, why did he call him Isaac? Because it means he laughed. Because Abraham laughed. He called the kid Isaac. Next strain, Ishak. Isaac means he laughed. Or laughter. Yes. No, because of Abraham laughed. She laughs later, but not here. Why? Again, again, God wants to make us aware of how much, how much we impact our children. And that the names of our children, the real names before God, are going to be carried forward by our action. Blessings or curses. Marriage is a serious business. It's a joyful, serious business, but it's a serious. And then now, he, as we said earlier, he carries it forward. He carries this law immediately. And the only thing I'll say about this, and then I'll stop. I've carried this forward in more than an hour, but it's a very rich chapter. That law of circumcision was negated later by St. Paul, who actually said he would basically excommunicate anybody who would be circumcised. Why? Let's understand its purpose. The immediate purpose of the law, the circumcision, is to be grafted into the covenant, the covenant of Abraham. That is to be an everlasting sign. But when Jesus came, there was another circumcision took its full meaning. Remember when I said it's separation, it's restraint, it's learning to behave, right? But it was only temporary because in the old covenant, the graces of God could not flow in our heart. But when the new covenant came through baptism, God puts in our heart the three theological Mm -hmm. virtues of faith, hope, and charity. And these cut us away from sin, from Satan. That is the real meaning of circumcision, separation from sin. So therefore, God does not contradict himself. The fact that today circumcision is not required... Whether you're circumcised, not circumcised, makes no difference as far as the faith is concerned. Is because the true meaning of circumcision is fulfilled into baptism. Therefore, circumcision was a sign pointing to the real thing, which is fulfilled in the new covenant. Because Jesus said, I have come not to um, reject, but to fulfill. And he fulfills the law completely by bringing it to its final meaning. Life in Him. That is the point that we must remember when we speak of circumcision. So, I will leave you with this. Abraham immediately goes out and carries forward the command. And he and all the men are circumcised. And notice the order. Circumcision occurs before the fulfillment of the promise. You see that? God doesn't give Abraham what he wants and then tells him, go be circumcised. God establishes a covenant, promises future fulfillment, but requires immediate obedience to the covenant. You see that? Yeah? Now, does that sound strange? Does it sound surprising to you? Yes? No? Here's how I'm going to put it to you. Very easy. 
Once I put it this way, you'll completely understand why it's done that way. And you'll see there's no other way to do it. Your son, the one who's picking his room, got his watermelon and chewing gum, and he picked up that ball in half of his room. Now negotiation are underway for the other half of the room to be picked up. And he then looks at you and says, Dad, can I drive your car? Now what do you say? You say yes, here are the keys. Take it out of the garage. No. But neither will you say, no, you, you, you can't. Because you don't want to stifle that spirit, right? He's looking forward. want to be able to do something. So what do you say? You know, son, driving a car is a lot harder than picking a room. If you want to drive the car, you have to be able to pick up your room. Now you got something that can get mileage out for the next 16, uh, uh, 12, 13 years dangling that carrot of driving the car, right? So yeah, you will drive my car, but first you need to learn. And the reason why, therefore, we are required to obey the covenant before the blessing come to us is because in that process of obeying the covenant, we come to know who God is, we come to love God, we come to grow in holiness, we come to become so much more than whatever gift we wanted in the first place. But if God were to give us the gift right away, we would never go. We will never undergo all these, this transformation. You understand? And so it goes with our prayer. Sometimes we've been praying for something and we don't get it. Or it looks like God is not going to give it to us. I know of a lady who had a girl and none was unable to... Was she adopted? I don't think she was adopted. She had a girl and she couldn't have children anymore. So she wanted to adopt. And she prayed for 20 years to be able to adopt. 20 years to zero. And 20 years later, in a span of three years here in California, in our time, within three years, they adopted three baby boys. Any one of you who have gone through the adoption process will recognize this for what it is, an absolute miracle. Three newborn baby boys for free. 20 years they had to wait. But in that 20 years, God purified their love, their heart, their intention, and then gave them their heart desire. So if God puts a desire in your heart and it persists, He's going to give it to you in its right time. But in the process, He's turning you into gold. That's how He works, just as you would work with kids. Same thing. It's just that most of us have a really hard time thinking of ourselves as wayward, stubborn, willful children who simply don't want to listen to what God has to say to us. We want to do it our own way. But the reality of the matter is that we are all in need of transformation, of becoming better and better at listening to God. And that's what He does through our life. And that's what we see here in this chapter. Okay, even though we don't have much time for questions, I'd like to open up for some questions and then we'll close with a prayer. Yes. Oh, yeah. So uh, I said earlier that everything that flows through history, everything that happens today is always under the control of God. And so, for instance, if let's say we have a president who is elected and who is pro-abortion, which is the case right now, you'd mind, you might wonder how could that be God's will? Remember, God's will acts through those who are faithful to him and those who are not faithful to him. And the primary example obviously, is Pilate. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, he told him, 
you would have no power over me unless it was given to you from above. And that is precisely the rule for all kingdoms on earth. The power is given from above and they will fulfill God's will. Now it seems strange until you understand the covenant. The blessings and the curses. God uses both to chastise us or to bless us as the need arises because he loves us. So for instance, if you have somebody who keeps on running and he's always busy and he is a workaholic and he goes all over the place and he has no time for his wife or his kids or nothing of that sort and he breaks a leg, multiple fracture, six months in bed. Now is that a curse or is that a blessing? To him, what is it? Oh, he's dying, right? Or God forbid, he, he's a Twitter and he broke an arm, the right arm. He can't you know, text anymore. He'd probably be going ballistic. So, likewise, in politics, God will, will have his will done through these people. His will may not be what we want. That's the problem. But it will be his will. And in the end, when we look through it all, we'll see how his will is moving forward for the greater glory of the church. And we will praise God. Because remember, in heaven, at the end of the day, when, when hopefully one day we're in heaven, we're going to rejoice in God's justice. Yes? And you know why we'll rejoice in God's justice? For a very simple reason. If one day you find yourself in heaven, and God forbid, your father, your mother, your sister, your son, your daughter, your brother is not there. What are you going to do? It's heaven, right? Do you see the, the, the problem here? It's heaven. So in heaven, you're happy, right? You're happy, 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 yes? You can't be any happier, huh? But your son is not there. And then you might give it 50 years or 200 years, but you'll figure out pretty quickly he's not there. You'll realize he's in hell forever and ever and ever, 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 ever. How could you be happy? See the problem? If you say you're not happy, you're not in heaven. But if you say you're happy, how could you be happy with somebody whom you love who's not there? And the answer is God's justice. You will rejoice when you see God's justice. You see why it's important? God's mercy is very important, but His justice also. Right? Well, what we can say for certainty is that Ishmael was incorporated into the covenant. Therefore, all his descendants were also incorporated into the covenant. That is the natural covenant. The covenant goes back all the way to Noah. And that is the covenant that governs all people, including us. But in our case, there is a one that supersedes it and brings it to its finality. And that is the new covenant. So anyone who is not governed under the new covenant is governed under the old. And if you compare the new to the old, you'd always want to be under the new and not under the old. Okay? You're right up to a point because it isn't suffering that saves us. It's love. Yeah? So, in a sense, when you have what we call redemptive suffering, which is effectively suffering born out of love, absolutely. Absolutely. So, for instance, St. Rebecca, this um, icon over there, um, when she was 25, uh, 25, I think, or 30, or some. Some age like that, she realized she's never been sick in her life. And she told, you, you know her story? Okay, I'm not going to bore you with it then. But uh, it's a pretty amazing story. She told the Lord, why have you abandoned me? I am your bride. How come you haven't visited me with sickness? 
And then the following day, her eye started to hurt tremendously, and she lost sight with her eye. And upon the instance, because her, her superior insisted, she went and had an operation on her eye, but she asked that the operation be conducted without anesthesia. And the doctor plucked her eye. And while people around her were screaming, the only thing she said was, Father, have you paid the good doctor? And then from then on, her health degenerated to the point where all her bones came loose. They couldn't move her. And she suffered for 30 years. And when you were to go and sit with her and listen to her, she would cheer you up. Yes, suffering born with love. Oh, see, then you take consolation in St. Therese, little child Jesus, the little way, right? So you may, I may have a cup this big, and all, that's all I can take. And if it's all filled, God will take the rest, right? Let me give you an example. Um, you have two kids. Again, go back to kids. A three-year-old and a 16-year-old. And it's Father's Day. And hopefully your kids did to you what they did to me. They made cards. And they came and they gave me those cards. And I hope your father's got the same thing. Now, I look at my five-and-a-half-year-old card. It looks like a, a battleground of sorts. It's a battleground of color with some stick people standing on it. I compare that to the poem my 15-year-old wrote me. There's no comparison, right? But in my heart, I'm just as happy because she's five and a half and she's 15. Likewise. Yeah? Some of us are only five and a half, and that's all we can do. Yeah? Yes. Abraham, because in the old uh, cultures, a a name isn't just some sort of symbolic indication of who you are. It's an indication of your essence. So a change of name is a change. It's an anthropological change of who you are, of your powers. It's akin to God speaking words and reality happen. So when he changed his name from Abraham to Abraham, the promise is fulfilled in him. That's why. And, and actually, we do it ourselves today. I'll give you an example. Let's say you have a, a, some sort of a great basketball player walking in a neighborhood, and he sees a little kid, six years old, playing basketball. He goes to him and he says... What's up, champ? And the kid is just beaming with joy because he knows who that big guy is and he call him champ. You see, imparting of power just with a word, that's what's going on. Same thing. Yes. Yes, we choose a name in baptism that, not need, that must be a name uh, of a saint. Otherwise, the church will not baptize. You can't go to the church and want to baptize your kid without a name that is that of a saint. Why? Because that name bears a promise. By giving him the name of a saint, you're saying, may it happen to you. It's a blessing you're bestowing upon your child, saying, may it happen to you as it, has the, as it had happened to the one bearing this name. Right? I'm incorporating you into the, the, the family of God through the virtue of hope and charity and faith. That's why. Yes. All right. Why don't we stand and finish with a word of prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.